I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. All right, guys. Thanks for coming out, man. Um, whenever I'm doing something, I always try to think of, like, clever uh, stuff to say in the beginning. But all I can think about is the thing that's probably the dorkiest thing to talk about because you guys live here and you're used to people. Like, I'm from the northern tier, man. I'm sorry. I, I can't like. I can't not discuss. I can't not bring up the heat. The only thing I've ever. It's, it's like the only thing I've ever like. I've been going to hot yoga with my wife, and it's like walking on the street. I keep expecting to turn around and see the missus bent over backward on a rubber mat. It really like. It's like the heat. The heat is is synthetic. It's the weirdest kind of thing. Uh, but you know, some other stuff about Arizona, man, that I think about, like, I, I stay apprised of, of wildlifey hunting and fishing news stuff. And, and you guys keep coming up on my radar where in February, all of a sudden one day I'm getting blown up by people like, dude, they're going to have a wild horse hunt in Arizona. <laughs> and I'm thinking that's not going to go well. And then, and then the next day, it's like, oh, they canceled the wild horse hunt, you know? Then the other day, I was, like, really saddened to hear about, the, you know, you guys got maybe two jaguars, and one of them turned up dead in Mexico, which was a major bummer. And then I got thinking, like, you got 40,000 wild horses, and no one can touch them. You got two jaguars, and one's dead, and you guys got it all wrong. Um, so... 
I do have some good things to talk about down here. Like I came down here, my first ever uh, successful coos deer hunt was in Arizona. Very much, very much uh, I have to thank for that. You guys' very own Outdoorsman's, the store, if you ever go down there. Those boys lined me out on it, and I came down here for my first uh, two very unsuccessful mountain lion hunts. Um, and so I'll always remember you guys for that. And I thought of you guys earlier, yes, I guess I got the email yesterday, but didn't read it till today, and I thought of you because I was reading about this new thing that just came out about Neanderthals. Now that I think of you guys as Neanderthals, but check me out. They just recently in Germany found this fallow deer carcass from 120,000 years ago that had very peculiar injuries on the deer, and they realized that a Neanderthal had killed it with a low-velocity spear, which implies that the Neanderthal, and they, they recreated on other animals, they were able to recreate the injuries, and it was from a sharpened wooden spear, and it was a low-velocity impact, meaning that it wasn't like he hucked it, he jabbed it, and the, the, the angle on it, they feel that he jabbed it with an underhand motion. So everybody has this idea of Neanderthals like knuckle draggers, right? They don't know what's going on. But this opens up the idea that they were doing some kind of coordinated hunting activities. Like they're working together and using concealment and getting up very close to a fallow deer to where a guy can just go pop and kill it. And um, so which means they are working as a team. And I'm telling you what, in Arizona, like, I think it's because the way they do tag draws here. When a guy draws a tag in Arizona, he goes with 12 guys and half the fire barn. To where there's like, when I'm looking at a hunt magazine and I see like some dude with some giant mule dude, there's like 50 guys lined up behind him on their camel. I'm like, that's Arizona, man. I guarantee it, you know? So I do appreciate the uh, camaraderie. Everybody gets one burger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when you divide <laughs> it up. It's like, I got my share in my front pocket. So I've always appreciated about that. Where like when someone has, it's like, you know, when your house is on fire and you expect everybody to come running. When someone in Arizona draws a tag, it's like, I'm in. <laughs> and you guys head out. Uh, Want to hit some introductions? So the Lavin Eagle, Giannis Putellis. Uh, everyone knows Giannis. And then on rare occasion, my big brother, Matt, will join. <laughs> And then we have uh, Dr. Carl Malcolm, who's been on a number of times and always comes and, and brings his expertise to us. So. Thank you. But yeah, uh, first question for you guys. Can you talk a little bit? I just want people to understand a little bit like, like the kinds of things you look at. Mamas. <laughs> yeah. I'm a research ecologist for USDA. Um, I, when you probably think of an ecologist, you think of somebody that's outside looking at birds and plants and bees and stuff like that. But really what I do on a daily basis is administer grants and write computer code and do statistics. So I'm just kind of a geeky kind of a science guy that sits at a desk, I guess. Would be a, uh. <laughs> um, can, can everybody hear him okay? It's not, like, to me it sounds like not loud. No, you're, you're good. Drew, can you turn I'll us start up? projecting from my bowels. Yeah. <laughs> like an acting student. Um, yeah, so a lot of statistics. And Carl, do you want to break it down? Yeah. So also an ecologist. 
Um, rather than doing a lot of research as an ecologist, what I do is a lot of uh, trying to apply the best available science that other people are producing to wildlife management, wildlife survey questions. So kind of a tech transfer position, but I also get to do a lot of teaching. Um, had a chance to work with the Forest Service's international programs, doing some wildlife ecology trainings in places like Russia, getting a chance to travel internationally. Um, and then one of the coolest things, one of the things I like most is opportunities to try to communicate about the significance of the work that we do to the people for whom we actually work, which are the American people. You know, I like to think about working for an agency as being a career that you should feel very grateful for, very privileged, and very service-oriented. So when I meet people for the first time and they're like, who do you work for? I like to say, well, I work for you. Work for all of you. You know, you guys are my bosses. And uh, as things, you know, we have new chiefs come in, we have new administrations come in, things change over time. But the one consistent fact is that public service employees and agencies like the USDA Forest Service work for the American people. So I work for all of you, trying to help care for the single greatest public land system on the planet. Uh, this guy needs a new drink, Carl. <laughs> all right, so with that, I want to, um, now that you understand that, I want to bring up something that recently happened to me where uh, on a previous show, I, you guys don't hunt a hell of a lot of turkeys, but you hunt some turkeys in Arizona, right? So I go, who, everyone who's like hunted turkeys just do like a yup. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Got you guys all wrong. So one day I was like, anyone that hunts turkeys a lot knows that the thing is that everybody thinks is going to happen is you're going to set up and call one off a tree and he's going to come running over to you. And one day I was like looking at how many times you try to do that and how many times it actually happens. And I got to wondering if, if, it's, if it's any better than just sitting there and not doing anything and waiting to see if one comes by you. Like, what, what are the odds that one would come by you? And a guy came up with this. You guys probably can't see this. But he came up with this very elaborate formula that explains that if you get 100 yards from a bird in a roost tree and you figure that you got 30 yards of range that way and 30 yards of range that way, you have a 9.4% chance that the bird will just naturally come by you. Which winds up for me calling into question like what exactly I was doing out in the woods that whole time because I don't know that I've even hit. <laughs> like I'm doing like probably like slightly better than what I would do if I just sat in the woods by all the antics and all the calling. But I showed this to Carl and you, um, you, were, you gave him an A for effort? I'm giving this guy an A with an opportunity for extra credit. Okay. All right. Because his math is sound. Um, I feel like, you remember when you're in, in like junior high, high school, and you're in some dry math lecture and they give you a word problem? I feel like if one of my teachers would have given me this particular word problem, like spelling it out, you're this many yards from the tree, you can shoot this far in any direction, what's the likelihood of killing a turkey? My attention would have perked up in a big way in that class. Okay. I've been like, all right, I'm ready for some math. Let's do this. So there's probably going to be a, a lower volume yep here, but how many people remember from your trigonometry class, Sokatoa? Yep. All right. That's a dude? 
Sokotoa. <laughs> no, um, Sokotoa. That was a Japanese philosopher, maybe, or something. <laughs> no, this pertains to right triangles and how you calculate. Um, you can calculate the degrees of a given angle based on knowing the ratio of length to where the right corner is in the triangle. And okay. you can use either the sine function, the cosine function, or the tangent function. And so this guy basically did a really cool little formula, very simple, very straightforward. It gives you an answer um, about the likelihood, given some assumptions, of a turkey randomly walking past you. I'm not disagreeing with any of that. But when you emailed me this, I said, it looks like his math is sound, but what matters is whether or not you care about killing the turkey. Because in his, in his language, he says, here's a function that will tell you the likelihood of the turkey walking past you, not the likelihood of you killing the turkey. And those are two very different things. Anybody ever have a turkey like walk within range that didn't end up getting shot? Yep. Yeah, I have. All right, so... For extra credit, again, I'm not knocking this guy's math. I think he did a very sound job. Yeah. He would factor in all, you know. There's a couple variables. And to back me up, I'm going to go to the single greatest turkey hunting book ever written by anyone. Which we talk about often on this here program. 10th Legion, Colonel Tom Kelly. All right. So for starters, if you want to kill the bird, and I'm going to the techniques chapter here. I'm going to quote the colonel. Number one. What you are interested in here is not shotgun artistry, but the simple delivery of a charge of shot. A delivery affected often through a hole the size of a grapefruit or through a slit like the crack between two loosely fitting barn doors. You normally only have to deliver it once and except to ease the cramped position you may be delivering it from, you seldom have to do it in a hurry. So what the colonel's getting at here is that oftentimes the bird might be in range you simply don't have a shot. So the first challenge I would put to this listener is to come up with what I'm going to call a visibility correction factor. Okay. So you could imagine theoretically the difference between sitting, for example, in the middle of an agricultural field with turkeys walking by you at 30 yards. High VCF. High VCF. Visibility correction factor. I like it. You're tracking. And you could imagine being on a real flat surface. Or you could imagine being in a relatively hilly landscape where maybe the turkey has the ability to drop down out of sight or thickly vegetated. Okay, so there's got to be some function that this trigonometry expert can come up with that would correct for differences in visibility, which is going to pertain to whether or not that turkey ends up in your bag or hoofing for the next ridge. Yeah. Okay, so there's one suggestion. Again, this is extra credit because the math is sound. All right, the next one pertains to a very important skill set that I think only a small number of turkey hunters have mastered. All right, and the colonel in 10th Legion talks about being, being seated such that both knees are bent and propped up in front of you high enough to make your gun assume an angle of 45 degrees. You've achieved this position for several reasons. It lets you keep the gun partially presented all the time. It is as comfortable as any. If a turkey approaches from your left, he is under the gun. And if he comes from directly in front of you, you can ease the gun from your left knee to your right, and at the proper time, 
slouch down even lower and let the barrel down until it bears. Now imagine this, everybody. The direction you are facing is considered to be 12 o'clock, straight ahead, and the colonel was a right-handed man. A turkey gobbler who has been keeping you pinned down for an hour and a half steps around an oak tree in plain sight at 30 yards at quarter after three. If you were at quarter to nine, skill and intelligence would have again trumped over ignorance and superstition, but he ain't. Okay, so the colonel goes on to say, there's two ways you can kill this turkey over here at quarter after three. The first one is if you are a practicing voodoo witch doctor, you can strike him dead with a glance. He goes on to say it's a wonderful way to kill him. Not only does it save shells, which are so expensive nowadays, but it does not spoil the meat. If, however, you are a mere mortal, not skilled in witchcraft or spells or incantations, you can do one other thing. You can very, very slowly, one inch at a time, carefully change hands, bring the gun up to the left shoulder, squinch up your right eye, look down the barrel, and bust him right where he stands in the plain, old-fashioned, expensive way the rest of us do with a shotgun. So the next variable is what I'm going to call the Kelly factor. Yeah. Can the shooter pull off what he's talking about and shoot ambidextrously? Can they shoot everything from 9 o'clock to 3 o'clock? what Colonel Kelly calls turning nine, three o'clock birds into nine o'clock birds. And so the other extra credit opportunity for this listener would be figuring in the Kelly factor. What was this dude's name? Adam D. Nowak. All He's right. got more work to do. More work to do. Uh, another like slightly like a numbers question for you guys. Matt, I one day mutilated something you were saying about how many stars there, how many planets there are. We're like, being interested in animals. Can I interrupt? I'm sorry. Something's going to bug me for the rest of the night if I don't say it now. And then Adam's going to email me and be like, dude, come on. When he first showed up and gave us those pieces of paper, he said, this is in like a perfect scenario. You're pretty much like working a bird coming off of a single oak tree and you got no other, you know, no veg around you, no, nothing rolling at all. He so gave he, the answer to the toy problem, which is like an excellent starting point. Yeah, yeah exactly. Dude, I'm not knocking So it. I'm just he's, saying that he kind of already has gotten some commended. extra credit. He did not say anything about the, <clears throat> the Kelly the factor. The Kelly factor. Yeah. Yeah, but your thing was about all the birds that just fly off. There's that, too. There's also, <laughs> there's also the CSTB factor. CSTB? Can't, can't see the beard. Oh, that's good. That's good. And there's, a, there's another variable at play. One of the assumptions would be that the turkey has not detected you on your approach because you're making this assumption that, you know, 360 degrees in a circle, and he's saying random chance that bird could go any direction. But it's pretty darn hard to get in on a bird and not tip your hand at least a little bit to the fact that you're there in the woods. So there's some assumptions at play here. I'm not giving the guy anything less than an A. I'm just saying. I don't care anything. Like now, I was, I'm getting that framed and hanging on my wall and nothing you're saying is making me not want no, to frame you, and hang yeah, on my wall. No. You gave a very elegant solution like to the basic. I like it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, being interested in animals, I'm interested in the idea of other animals on other planets. This comes up often. And uh, 
one day I was saying something like, uh, one day I was talking about, I was saying, my brother, this guy here, I was saying, he was telling me that considering how many other planets there are, you were like, I'm pretty open to the idea that there is an eight foot Wookiee who hangs out with a smuggler. <laughs> like, and a dude wrote in and he goes, you know, how many are there? Because I've heard that there are ma- as many planets as there are grains of sand on earth. Yeah. Well, I, I heard this, I heard a podcast not long ago with a physicist and he was saying that like theoretically it's entirely possible that there are so many um, possibilities for life in the universe that there's probably like somebody, a group, an ensemble of people somewhere that look exactly like all of us. Talking about, first you'd come across a scene where everybody is doing like we're doing, and it's all exactly the same, except Giannis has a green shirt on. Or but then like, if you go further, you'll find the 6.2% chance that a turkey walks past you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so there's this idea that's floating around that's avant-garde in physics now that, yeah, if you're willing to look far enough, you could find this replicated. <laughs> <laughs> and not just a Wookiee. Okay, another statistics one, and you kind of talked about this earlier, and I really want to get into this because this is something that comes up with people all the time. Having a number of encounters with grizzly bears. And I, and I always felt like, like I had in my head to be that, man, it seems like it's heading, it's leading somewhere. Like this is going somewhere. That every time, you know, you go in the woods, it feels like, or going to the grizzly bear areas, it feels like it's just heading in a direction. And then this October, we had like a really, like, like a, a, a big mix up with a bear. And there was a really real close call and there was physical contact uh, with a big brown bear. And I later said, like, I feel like I was going down a, a canyon wall, wondering where the bottom was and that I had found the bottom now, that that was where this was headed. And now there's no way it could get worse. And I was now climbing out of the canyon wall. And three different guys wrote in to say that, uh, and I was just expressing kind of like how I felt, but three different guys wrote in to say that what you're committing is something called the gambler's fallacy or the Monte Carlo fallacy or the fallacy of the maturity of chances, which he pointed out, one of the guys pointed out, tends to afflict people who are involved in tag draws. (laughs) <laughs> big game tag draws and this is something I've asked you Matt about a thousand times is how does one co- like I used to feel like I'd be like okay if there's a 25% chance of drawing a tag right I'd be like oh yeah in four years I'll have that bitch right which isn't uh, how it works can, can, you, can you expand on this for a minute <laughs> Well, there's a lot to expand on there. I mean, so there is a lot to expand on. Yeah, there's a lot to explore there. Probabilities are not intuitive numerical objects. Um, first of all, like this idea that you had that when, when your, your analogy about descending a slope, I'm, 
I'm assuming you're meaning that you felt like the likelihood that you were going to get attacked was increasing, right? Yeah, like the more exposure, the greater the chance of the attack. And then I feel like the attack happened, and I was like, oh, so there I've ex- yeah. it happened, and, and now I just feel like it won't. Yeah, I, I could see where I've never heard it called the gambler's fallacy before, but I could see where, I mean, because gamblers are guilty of that, and so are sports uh, enthusiasts. Like, my team is due. I'm due for, it, it's kind of a, it's a more, it, it, it's, it's less intuitive way than, of thinking than just straightforward induction. Induction is when you think that the future is probably going to resemble the past. It's more of like a counter-inductionist standpoint where, meaning you're like, I, I never draw it. So, yeah. I mean, it seems more logical to me to think the more um, occurrences I have of not getting attacked by a bear, the more that should assure me that I'm not going to get attacked by a bear, right? Yeah. You have some prior probability belief about how, before you ever go in the mountains, about the likelihood that you're going to get attacked by a bear. And it seems logical that you would adjust that probability by, you know, lowering it each time you step forth in the woods and don't get attacked by a bear. Yeah, because I now feel like it's going to happen again. (laughs) You're like, now this is the new year. You're an inductivist. You're an inductivist, straight inductivist, which that makes more sense to me. Um, But then the logical fallacy, you can see where it falls apart, where it's not applicable with tag draws in general. Like this notion that you're due carries weight when there's preference points, as there normally is. There's a reason to believe you're due. Um, And then... You know, these like the, the, the logical fallacy thing, it's kind of like the people, it's when the draws are independent, like you were saying earlier, you know. Like when you're taking marbles out of the urn and then putting them back and drawing again. But if you get attacked by a bear, let's say you hunt the same place for 20 years and then you get attacked by a bear, I mean, it gets complicated. Maybe that doesn't up the probability that you think the next time you're going to go in there that you're going to get attacked again. Because maybe they killed that bear and it was the only bear in the area. <laughs> so can you real quick break down? I don't know if they, am I get at all talking about what you wanted me to You talked about part of it. But the other part I want you to talk about is, I think just real quick, because I remember you explaining this to me and it, it relieving some tensions I felt, of explain to me, for the viewer's benefit, the listener's benefit, what happens when you're repeatedly going in for things that you think you have a 10% chance of? Okay. Like how those so, numbers relate. Yeah. So we talked about this a little bit earlier. Someone might say, like, if you're in a, you have a 1% chance of dying in a small airplane crash, that doesn't mean that on the 100th flight. No, probabilities don't <laughs> add, they, they multiply. So if you, let's just make it a super simple, as simple as we can, there's no preference points, okay? So it's New Mexico. <laughs> and you put in for a tag. We're, well, we're going to define two variables. And this sounds going to sound complicated, but it's not. Q is the probability that you don't draw the tag, okay? okay. So, you're, so you're, if you you're, have a 5% you're putting chance. In for, uh, you're putting in for uh, a, a deer what, tag. What are, the, what are the odds going to be that you work with? 10%? 
Oh, I'm not going to give you the answer. I have to get my calculator out. I'm just going to give you the formula and let okay. you work it out for yourself. I was going to make an animal. I was going to have it be that we're trying to get an animal tag. Um, so the probability, well, we can do that. We can do this. So let's say that um, the probability that you don't draw the tag is 90%. Okay. So super, super nice elk unit in New Mexico. Yeah. So if you put in one once, what's the probability that you draw the tag? Once? 10%. 10%. If you put in twice, it's one minus 0.9 raised to the number of times you drew. What's that? You it's lost me. One minus 0.81. It's one. It's nineteen percent. So you've jumped up to nineteen percent. But then, if you put it in again, it's um, twenty-seven, seventy-three percent. Four times is thirty-six. It's sixty-four. So there's this. It never. There's. It never degrades to a zero percent chance that you. Don't draw, or that you and it ch- never achieves one hundred percent. Never achieves one hundred percent, right? And this is all looking into the future, right? So you could say, all right, if I apply for the next five or ten or fifteen years, here's my percent given all those opportunities. But then next year, when you apply and don't draw, you're back at a new starting point, right? Because they're memoryless. Yeah. Because. They had, like, it has no memory. Like when you flip yeah, a coin, like, but, but the next I, coin you I, I flip doesn't know what happened with the first I, I, coin. So the formula is, like I said, Q is the percent chance you don't draw it. N is the number of times you put in. So 1 minus Q to the power N. Yep. <laughs> how, uh, how do you guys... This has nothing to do with this has nothing to do with what we've been talking about, but I'd be curious because this is the thing that someone wonders about, and, I, and, and it's an interesting question. When you're out hunting with other people, what are the things that you consider when you consider like who's up? Because I've done everything from drawing straws to just having a sort of like a really like complex understanding of what's going on that sort of like what's happened in people's past what sorts of opportunities they've fielded how far did they come who's this seem like more special to and you arrive at like you know what if we find one you go ahead thanks man (laughs) done How do you guys work that out? Because you said something to me one time. You were saying something to me like a problem with, you like to hunt by yourself, which I'm going to talk about a little bit. You, Matt, like to hunt by yourself. And you're saying, because I never have to wonder who's up. Right. Oh, it's a source of tension for sure. Yes. But I would agree. You you described it very well, all those like background considerations of, well, you missed that nice one last year and it's been a few years and I got one and but I've been working way harder, and this is his first time out. He doesn't deserve it. It's my spot. Yeah. But he kind of suggested I ought to go look here. Right. Right. So I've hunted more with Giannis the last few years than anyone, and 
Giannis and I kind of just take turns. Like, it feels like that we're going to go after something, and I was the one in front last time, so. Yeah. You'll be in, and that seems to work out good. I'm still mad that I'm not the one up front, but. <laughs> so out of you two, who's up front right now? Oh, clearly me, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd have to agree. <laughs> so you guys got it worked out. Who's up? Well, you just, I mean, yeah, I don't, this sorry. was a crucial conversation I wasn't planning on having it on stage, but glad to have it out of the way. Glad to have it out of the way. So it's like in your mind, you know that this is something that has to be sorted out. I was just, I was joking. What usually happens, because he gets into the woods a week ahead of me, and so by the time I get there, it's just like, hey, I got one down. Let's go pack it out. I'm like, all right, sweet. Got here just in time. And then I get to, it's my turn <laughs> after that. So it works out. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's, how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know, they seem great to me. It's just an improvement on perfection. The new system, made in the USA, gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you can still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20 plus years. Deck is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck, out of the way, and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly 
to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Do you have any, any special? Uh, I'd, add, I'd add a couple. Um, I think the seniority thing is a big one. You know, we talk a lot about trying to get new people in the field, and I, I think given, like, repeated opportunities to somebody who's new makes a lot of sense. So this idea of seniority... Um, I think it's super important to have this figured out in advance and then stay committed to it. I've been in situations where taking somebody else out on a mule deer hunt, for example, like, you know, my little brother, it's his turn, then I'm glassing to see a tanker buck. I'm like, oh, that's his turn, you know? Gotta <laughs> stick with it. So, like, communicate it in advance and then stick with it. I think when you're glassing, some people will go with whoever spots it, it's gonna be their opportunity. Um, I don't really, that's too, I don't like that. Well, if you're, if you're, it's all right. It's just too much like, nah, I saw it first. It seems like something my kids, it seems like something like, like how my kids would decide who gets like a lollipop. Well, so imagine, imagine you've got like a good glassing spot with a bunch of country to cover and you go to two separate sides, right? And I'm glassing in one spot, you're glassing in the other. You know, option one is I glass one up. I'm like, oh, it's Steve's turn. Come take it. Or option two is whoever spots it goes for it. I'm just laying out options. Let me tell you, okay. you're right, but you're wrong. Okay. If I was hunting with you and we hadn't had the discussion, which is, I've been in that situation, hadn't had the discussion, and we both, like, with you and me, it wouldn't be like a big question of like who got what, because we both have a lot of opportunities. Sure. And you said, I'm out of here, I spotted it. I'd be like, yes, correct, go. Yeah. But in the back of my mind, I'd be like, that was kind of a dickish move. Yeah. No, I hear you. <laughs> So let me, even though he's got every right that you, you have, here's the thing. Everyone does this. What do you think? <laughs> right? And you like know where you want it to go so bad. And yeah. you've got in your head, you've got it sorted out, but you still have the moment where you give the guy the chance to yes. sink or swim. Yes. Hunting with, with Callahan. We one time hadn't had the discussion at all until we're looking at a, a nice buck almost in range. And we look at each other and it's just like this. Duh. Yeah. Well, that's why we I think hadn't it, had to talk. And that's when we drew straws. That's why I think getting it straightened out in advance makes sense. If you're going to do like a really sort of sharing partner approach where you spot a deer, it's my turn, you let me go after it, let's just have that conversation in advance and stick to it. Yeah, you know? it's an awkward conversation. It is. But then the last, the last one I would leave you with on this topic is um, a guy who I loved to hunt with this phenomenal mentor I had in New Mexico. We haven't drawn in a couple years, so I'm using it like past tense. He's still a guy that I'm applying with, but he's a guy in his 70s. Um, his name's Dick Polk, phenomenal elk hunter. Grew up around Deming, New Mexico. Guy's just knows his stuff. And I moved from the Midwest to New Mexico, and this guy took me under his wing. And I had very limited elk hunting experience. And Dick is a very accomplished elk hunter. And so he's very, very picky. So we're hunting together, and it was basically a scenario where if he saw, if he found a giant bull, 
he'd probably want to go after it. If I found a giant bull, he'd want me to go after it. And on two different occasions, there were circumstances where he found a bull that he did not want to go after, but sent me after that bull. Yeah, that's nice. And that guy, like, I will forever remain indebted, not just because he let me go after the elk, but because he just taught me so much and was so generous with his expertise from like a lifetime of hunting in New Mexico. So it, it, you know, it does stand out when people take the time to be generous with sharing those opportunities because every, you know, everybody's working hard to have that golden chance and all of us have a limited number of stocks to make. And it's a beautiful gift to give somebody like, you know what? You go for it. He was just adding to the piggy bank because now every giant bull you spot, you got to be like. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's like, he knows how to game it out properly, you know? He's thinking long game. Okay, a guy, uh, let's say, let's just say that there's a guy that lives in Georgia. And let's say that in Georgia, it is not permissible to hunt black bears using bait. It's not permissible to hunt black bears using hounds. He gets to noticing that, man, black bears sure like persimmon trees. What would happen to a fella say that he goes and starts planting persimmon trees in the national forest, knowing that he's playing it, he thinks he's playing a 10 year game here. And he wants to know. Morally, where am I? And legally, where am I? I don't know on legally. I think morally, that's, that's great. <laughs> like, it's, it's like, it's such a, I mean, it's just such a like long game and investment and kind of like, I'm like, please, right? It, as though I had the ability to say yes or no, but in my mind, like, yeah. <laughs> But where is he on the, where is this dude on the legal end? Can you just go do like random like civicultural activities on national forest land? I'll jump in here. Well, that's why, that's why I wanted to ask Carl about this because he might, because he dabbles in the national forest system a little bit. Well, it's like, can, the dude, can a dude do that? Like be like, I'm going to plant a big berry patch and then start hitting it. No. 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 The idea of like managing... Oh, can I, can I, he wanted to point out that it's not like I'm playing alfalfa or something. He wanted to point out that this is a native, right? I'm planting a native tree in its home range, which he felt was a very important thing to throw in. Let's just say. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hypothetically speaking, <laughs> I would not condone the activity from a legal perspective. I think you could liken it to any other manipulation of the national forest, which when we talk about doing any kind of vegetation management, there is a public engagement process. People get to weigh in. I know we're just talking about a few trees here. Not likely to cause any big issues, but if you're going to be out there like digging holes in the ground, you have to account for all the different values that could be on the landscape. You want to make sure you're not, for example, digging up an archaeological site. And if you're going to be manipulating vegetation, there's a process through which proposals like that would need to be vetted. I mean, you could liken it, you know, you could carry the logic forth to a situation where somebody decides they want to plant a food plot on the national forest. Yeah. So, you know, 
you could make the slippery slope argument. If you allow this, then maybe you should allow the next thing. Yeah, I got, I got the. Yeah, I, I'm a sucker for slippery slope arguments, man. Yeah, because like I do believe, I do believe that the slope is slippery. Yeah, in in almost all things, you know, like I'm that. I'm, I always that's where my mind goes. I would plant a whole truckload of parsimons so I made sure there was plenty of seeds to germinate into a tree, and I just sit there, make sure nothing <laughs> ate them. I'm gonna wait here while all these seeds I planted. <laughs> Uh, I, I want to point out that this guy, this hypothetical person, uses, um, he has verb, he's, he's turned Johnny Appleseed, <laughs> the noun, into a verb where he's going he's gonna to Johnny Appleseed an area. I like it. I like it. <laughs> Which I like quite a bit. Okay, another one. And this you can like I don't know if you want to share your I don't know if you're going to want to share your story but a guy uh, let's say a guy goes out hunting and he makes a hit on an animal and he factors all the factors in and decides he's not going to push it till tomorrow so he's going to get up bright and squirrely it's a cold night he get up bright and squirrely and track it then but he tracks it and lo and behold it's been eaten by coyotes He's wondering, what now is my relationship to the antlers? He's like, would you keep the antlers? I would 100%, but I would keep them as, I would keep them exactly for what they were. Like, I wouldn't feel, I don't think I would feel tempted to present them as something they weren't. Like, I would be like, they'd be sitting there where I keep that kind of stuff. And I would say to people, see that? Well, here's what happened. Right, I would like I would have them. They would be emblematic of not quite getting it, or you know what I mean. They'd yep. mean something, but they wouldn't mean what it meant had I gotten it. Totally. You follow me? Totally. Yeah, man. Yeah, for me it'd be like, it, let's say I had found it. I mean, if you, if to me, if you don't eat it, then it doesn't. You can't. It's not a point of pride. That's where you, you know? draw the line. I well, it's a couple. Of, I mean, it, it, reasonable people can disagree. For me, yeah. it's got to be shot on public land, and it's got to be, <laughs> um, and it's it, it, yeah, and you got to eat it. That, that I would I would look at that rack with sorrow. I would take it. It would be a sorrow rack. There'd be more sorrow than. But you would remove it from the woods. Oh yeah, yeah. Would you uh, notch a tag? Mm, no. <laughs> No, I wouldn't. I mean, like, like, like guys do that out of penance, you know, but I just, I don't know. Like, hunting season only comes once a year. You, know? <laughs> you got anything? I got, yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've, you're alluding to a story where I experienced something along these lines. Um, had an archery pronghorn hunt on the Gila in New Mexico. I'm not, pre- I'm not bullying you. No, I? no, no, okay. not. Thanks for your concern. Got my big boy britches on here. Okay. Um, Archie pronghorn hunt in the Gila. Phenomenal pronghorn country. Low density, but some really nice bucks. Practiced all summer. Had an opportunity at a great buck. I won't belabor like the whole story of the stock and everything, but bow hunting for a pronghorn is inherently challenging. Hit this buck. Looked like a good shot. 
towards the end of the day, and the buck ran off, gave it some time, and by the time I was going to go follow the track, it had gotten dark. And so I went in with a headlamp, and when I got to the area where I picked up the blood trail, I only went maybe 40 or 50 yards, and then I just heard all hell break loose up ahead of me on the trail. Hooves thundering off. And so, being a Midwest whitetail guy, I thought maybe I'd jump the buck. And so I left and went back to my camp, and I said, all right, I'm going to sit here till midnight, which was going to be another four hours. And at midnight, I'm going to come back out here and resume tracking this buck. And came back at midnight, parked my truck to start hiking back into where this all had gone down, opened the door, and the instant I opened the door, I could hear the coyotes on the carcass, just fighting and howling and yapping and making all kinds of ruckus. So I didn't even like, go to try to pick up the blood trail. I just walked towards the sound of this chaos. And the sound that I had heard earlier had to have been all the does that had piled up where the buck had gone down. Yeah. Because he only went like 75 yards from where he'd been hit. But by that point, basically the back half was gone. The neck was chewed up. The organs were all pulled out and eaten. So then I commenced... See, this wasn't even the next morning. No, this was that night. So I, I then commenced to salvaging what meat I could off that animal, which was half a backstrap on each side, um, some neck meat, most of the shoulders. And this was a, a really like pronghorn of a lifetime kind of animal. Um, and so I, you know, I took the head as well. And later on that season, my wife ended up getting a really nice buck where I was able to take the cape to mount the horns of this buck that I had gotten with my bow, okay. right? And it has a different kind of feel to it than it would had I managed to salvage every ounce of meat off that animal, you know? And it so was when you're matter. at your house and a dude comes up and does as dudes do, where they kind of come over and stare at it and that invites you to say like, oh, let me yeah. tell you. I tell them, I tell them the there story. I and so the mistake I made, I, I mean, it was a good shot. The mistake I made, you know, people talk about how easily pronghorn go down. Uh, heard, there's no mistake, I don't think. Well, in hindsight, hindsight being 2020, um, I wish I would have just followed up because all those does ran off. The buck was laying there. He would have been totally untouched at that point. Yeah. But it was just a matter of a few hours. And the other thing that was interesting about that was as I was salvaging meat off that animal, the coyotes were still close enough yapping at each other that I could hear them yapping on either side of me. Like, burr, burr. And I'm sitting there trying to carve meat off. And you know, I, I've been around all kinds of wildlife, and I know coyotes are not like a big, scary animal, but the, you know, the hair on the back of my neck just being out there in the dark with this carcass, like carving meat off with yeah, because it's the object of their desire. Yeah, it, there was definitely yeah. like this primal kind of vibe to it. But I would I would agree. Yes, I would I would take the antlers or the horns with me. But they almost become, especially if you lose all the meat, they almost become like a token of sorrow and apology at that point in my mind. But why do we keep these, you know, the, the word trophy is a really loaded word, right? Yes, sir. Like, why do, we, why do we keep any of these mementos? It's about the story. It's like, you know, somebody buying a rack at a thrift store for 40 bucks. I just do not understand that. Like, when you walk into a Cracker Barrel and you see the deer on the wall, right? 
Like, no. it, it, it's a hollow. No, then it means there's got to be some connection. But if a buddy of mine gave me something he found out in the woods, I might hang on to it. Yeah. But if I, I would never buy something, I would never, like, at a yard sale, buy something that someone found out in the woods. But if a guy I kind of knew, even if my buddy's buddy found something weird out in the woods, I might hang on to it because at least it felt like somehow there's a connection. Yeah, and it can get to be kind of a loose connection. But recently, a guy gave me a hunk of uh, a little chunk of a mammoth tusk, but I didn't know him and didn't even catch his name. And that hunk of mammoth tusk doesn't mean a fraction to me what a mammoth tooth that was given to me by a buddy of mine. Yeah. Because I can like look at it and uh, right, it's it, you can't even put your you can't even really like put your finger on it. But there's some sort of there, there's like a the, 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 there, there's symbol rich things. Wildlife relics. Yeah, like, it doesn't have to rich. be positive is the point I'm making. Like, yeah. Most of the time, we associate these things with pos- like, almost unequivocally positive experiences. But I think there's no reason you couldn't have something that reminds you of a very significant, somber experience that you've had. And I don't think it makes it any, any less significant, but it's a very different kind of a totem at that point. But it, but it opens up like what happens when a dude goes into some little 100-acre enclosure, you know, and arrows some 400-inch bull that he bought off a guy. Um, he's willing. What's that? Cracker barrel bull? No, I mean, just like, you know, like, like I said, you just have some small enclosure, and they raise him up with a bottle, and eventually they let some guy go to pretend to hunt one. Yeah. When he hangs it up, he knows, but he's just in it for the, he's just in it for the, the, the perception the false perception, people see it and they're like, oh, this has a rich symbolism that I know to be true. And that person is putting it forward as, he just wants to harness the adoration. But personally, he knows. So there is like different ways that different people handle the question. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I know, but you don't know. And that makes me feel good. You know, <laughs> do you think it really does though? You think that really makes uh, it just seems if it didn't, it wouldn't be something that happened. Yeah, but uh, Matt, talk about have you you haven't talked about this with us before when you had the bear steal your elk? You tell that story. Um, yeah, a few years ago, I was hunting and uh, by himself <laughs> and I shot, shot an elk and um, took it apart. And it was by the time I took it apart, it was dark and um. I had a couple miles back to my camp, and I just was out of steam, so I didn't try to get it in a tree or anything. And the next day, I came up, tried to get up early in the morning, tried to get back up to it, and it had been a bear had found it and buried about buried it all, destroyed about half of it, and like an area about as big as the stage looked like a D nine cat had gone through it. I don't know. There was a lot of. Uh, a uh, surplus digging that seemed to go on. Like, like he was doing extra digging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he sucked back the, the boneless. Sucked back the boneless meat and buried the bone in. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Like I got the back quarters off of it and I can't remember and other, other little bits and pieces but I figure I lost about half. And I remember you saying you took it down to a river and washed it off and mm-hmm. loaded it on your lawn. Yeah, and, and then I, t- you know, I tagged that, and I was like, I'm not gonna, um, not 
take that and have it be my elk for the year. So when you look at that, uh, do you look at that like, man, that was shitty luck? Do you look at it like lesson learned? I got lazy. Now I'm... Yeah, I would never leave an elk on the ground in that in grizzly country again overnight. So, that, yeah, that was very just a very practical lesson I derived. I didn't, like, uh, beat myself up about it too much, but... And, uh, and you hung the antlers? It was a cow. Oh. So you, need, you don't even need to wrestle with that one. No. Did you keep the ivories? I did keep the ivories, yeah. I wanted to ask you about ivories. Yanni, are you cool on that? Uh, you got more to add? You know, I lost the very first elk I ever shot at. Lost it how? Killed him and couldn't find him. Yeah. And they found him like two weeks later with the bear on top of there, and there was no salvaging whatsoever. And I got the antlers, and I was... I don't know, 19 or 20. I was, I was really even too young to wrestle with it. But looking back on it now, it's funny because we've had this conversation. I haven't thought about it prior to, to right now. But um, I remember taking pictures of go like We actually went into the woods and I had some buddies take pictures you know, of, of the antlers with of me. Of a two-week? Oh. Yeah, I did it. I did that. But I remember having, like now looking back on it, I, I wasn't, um, it, it definitely was just different. Like I didn't have the excitement that I, you know, later did when I went out and killed my first elk and I watched him fall over dead, you know? Yeah. But, uh, show everybody your wedding ring, Matt. It's a, a genuine, <laughs> a genuine elk ivory ring. Um, do you feel that, like, what is that? Like, why that, Right. For a wedding ring. It just seemed like the default. Like my wife and I's first date was was elk hunting. And she was with me and helped me pack this elk out. It was like, it was I didn't even ever really consider a different thing, I guess. Yeah. They say that those, the ivories, uh, are vestigial, right? Yeah. Vestigial tusks. Elk had six to eight inches. A six to eight inch tusk. Yep. It's hard to picture. Well, it's not that hard to picture when you think about other deer of the world. You got miniature versions elsewhere on the global landscape. They have a tusk. Oh, yeah. For fighting? For fighting, yep. Yeah, typically the males will be significantly larger than the females' tusk. So it's got antlers and then a wild hog tusk. Not necessarily even antlers. So, for example, in China, in the area where I did some of my Asiatic black bear research, they have a little diminutive deer that they call the muntjac or the barking deer. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. And they've got, they've got tusks, um, and, and they vocalize. I mean, being a Midwest, you know, Michigan kid in China for the first time, where you have just like seven different ungulates running around on the landscape blows your mind you see a little deer the size of a small dog jump on a log and start barking at you just <laughs> what is this place <laughs> but yeah they've got they've got fangs um chinese water deer have fangs so yeah it's like the the antlers on elk have gotten bigger the tusks have gotten smaller oh, okay but yeah it would have been for for fighting and there's some behavior when, when bulls are in their aggressive mode, not just when they're bugling, but when they're posturing. 
they'll do this thing. Maybe you guys have seen it where they'll, they'll like lift their, lift their lips and show their, their whistlers a little bit or show their ivories. Really? Yeah. yeah. They'll do that kind of posturing still. So it's like a behavioral relic from back in the day when they'd be showing each other their tusks. A thing I wonder about elk ivories is, is, is liking ivories learned or would people independently arrive at the fact that elk ivories were cool? Oh man, it's, got, it's like a thing in the top of the elk's mouth that's made out of actual ivory. It seems like... You feel like people would independently arrive independently at the coolness. think that that was well, it's, pretty cool. It's not like elk hunters of this era who are thinking it's cool. I mean, it's something that's been cool for a real long time. People have always recognized it as cool. Right, but you can still see where you, maybe your hypothesis would be correct, but it's like a, a legacy of liking it that, that was dis, never disconnected. It's yeah. all, but it seems like they would, you'd independently arrive at that, think, thinking that was pretty cool. Do you guys think that, uh, that a vegan can drink breast milk? <laughs> That was a terrible segment. I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you a zero on, on the one to ten scale for segways. You don't segways. think the segway? Speaking yeah, of elk some, ivory, I feel like I do some polished segways now and then, and I just, I well, it's just good to shock. I just didn't have the energy, man. It was like a shock. Yeah. We expect more. Yeah, because like, I just, I just, I don't know. Speaking of vestigial tusks. <laughs> I only bring it up because a guy uh, wrote in who, who works with a vegan and knows that they breastfeed their kid and doesn't want to ask them, but like, isn't that not? Like, if the thing, if the definition, right? What is the definition of a vegan? All right, the definition of a vegan is someone who does not consume or use and by consume, I mean ingest or otherwise use an animal product. Without getting into the, the hows and whys. Yeah, just do you or do you not? It's not a question of like your, your ethics. It's a simple, do you or do you not consume or otherwise use animal products? It seems like there's no way that that person is a vegan. Because that- what he's pointing out is if everyone starts out, like if you, if you are vegan and you're like, you don't use honey because of the subjugation of bees, you don't, like, you don't use milk because of the <laughs> subjugation of cows, but you grow up drinking breast milk from your mother, could you, you know, I'll point out just as a side note, I've thought that like, I've, like at times I've had these like thresholds I wouldn't caught cross in terms of like what I've eaten. But then I was like served a domestic dog in Vietnam. I was served a monkey in South America. And so I've like keep passing up the things I won't do. And the only frontier left, right, is the unmentionable. Eating a vegan? No, like... No. It's like the only one left is, is the one. And then when we started having kids, I had this idea like you could... There's like a sanctionable form of cannibalism would be the uh, placenta. Yep. Which people, have you had some? We had the... Um, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I believe that we sent ours away somewhere and then we got back. Basically... In, 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 <laughs> I, I would have done that myself. No, um, they got, came, it came back in pill form. I got a question, though. So you this. shipped off a placenta in the mail, mm-hmm. and six to eight weeks goes by, 
And here's the pill. Yep. Can I ask a question? Yeah, please. All right. So, I mean, it's a thousand <laughs> questions. All right. So, when I started deer hunting, yeah. I didn't have anybody teach me how to butcher a deer. Is this deer. a real bad segue? No. Oh, okay. I didn't have anybody teach me how to, how to butcher a deer, but I, I cared for the meat well and took it to a processor. Mm-hmm. And when I got it back, some of the meat seemed pretty good. Other packages of meat seemed less so. I know where this is going. And so that was one of the motivations for me to learn how to butcher my own deer because I was concerned that if I sent my venison to a processor, how would I know that I was getting my deer back? Let alone a, let alone a deer back. <laughs> some pro, you know, I'll point out, some processors are even open about the fact oh, yeah. that they do combo. That they batch it. They batch. They batch your grind. Hmm? Did you check this out? Were you like, like, do you have any worry that it wasn't your? Oh, oh, oh. oh, like, there's some, like, some lady in Kansas, you know, and you're like eating her placenta. So? But I don't understand why, why did you want it in a pill form anyway? They, the reason that they do it is that supposedly you're supposed to be adding some sort of nutrients. It's, it's for the, the, the mother, right? Because she's lost a lot of blood. She's lost stuff through this whole okay. process. And, and re-ingesting it is supposed to help her out. Right? Yeah, that's because in you, some, in some you cultures, it. you just, like, in some cultures where there's, you know, I imagine, like, lower quality food resources, it's pretty common to boil it and eat it. Yeah, well, in Great Britain, it was a fad for a while. Yeah, but that's not the necessity one. That's right, the throwback. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, so just because it was there, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll have a couple. See if I feel any different <laughs> like, in the morning. Did it put, it, put did hair you on feel, your chest? Like, did you feel like cannibal-y? <laughs> did you feel like a little bit cannibalish? No, it never cross crossed my mind. mind. Yeah. And I've talked about this a lot before. I liked to think of myself as the kind of guy that would drink breast milk. And I bragged about how I was gonna, and that was what I was gonna do. But I couldn't, chickened out. But Giannis, you would like lighten Bef- your- Before I ever met you, yeah. Yeah, you would lighten your coffee with the stuff. Yeah, I did that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, like, I don't, I'm not gonna defend myself, I'm not gonna brag either, but yeah. If, Cause I was at home with Ina for about nine months or so. And so Jennifer and, she probably doesn't want to tell all the details, but like, like everybody knows that moms that are working and breastfeeding, there's a lot of pumping that goes on. So I was at home thawing out. Yeah, good. Sounds just like your turkey drumming. Just, yeah. No, a, a turkey spits and drums like this. And a breast pump goes. So I valued the work that she was doing. So I'd be thawing out bags, warming them up, yada, yada, yada. Well, sometimes the kid, you know, you can only reheat it so many times, and it's been so long, I can't remember the, the rules of, you know, dealing with breast milk, but at a certain point, there's two ounces left, and the kid's You're not going to drink it. half No, I had half and half. The, kid, the kid's asleep, and you can't put it in the fridge again. You can't warm it up again. And so I'd say, God, what a waste. And just, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, is, it like the fact that I couldn't do it is a burden to me. It's very sweet. It tastes like sugar-laden milk. 
But it, to return back to this, the, the question about, and granted, in all fairness, if I was going to ask like questions, like like understanding vegan questions, I should probably have you know take the time to go ask someone who is right. This is like not accurate, but or it's not the best way to go about this. But it does bring up this thing because I remember going to I remember going to a Jewish scholar and asking about Old Testament dietary law. And in the Old Testament, you know, it'd be like, it'd say, um, you know, the stuff like only things with uh, cloven hoof, only things with a cloven hoof. And we look now in like in the, the prohibition on eating pork, for instance, okay, in the Old Testament, like don't eat pork. And we look, we're like, oh yeah, well, the reason they said don't eat pork is because trichinosis and other kinds of diseases. So that's why that's in there. Like, I know that's why that's in there. But you go ask a scholar, and it was a believer and a scholar would say, you don't know why God said that. It's not for you to understand why he said it. He said it, and that's the rule. And don't try to, like, guess what the motivations were and then determine that now the motivations aren't valid anymore. On and on, right? So with the vegan thing, you look and be like, it's because you don't want to, like I said, be mean to bees. So you don't eat honey. But let's say all the bees just, for some weird reason, there's a colony of bees with honey, and for some weird reason, all the bees just fall over dead. So no one's being mean to the bee by taking the honey. But you still wouldn't want to take the honey to stay true to your conviction, I'm guessing. Like, no one's subjugating the bee at that point. So in that way, I feel like if that's what it is and that's true, then you can't drink breast milk. This is not a major question. This is not like a problem. It's just something I wonder about all the time. (laughs) I mean, along the same lines, you could ask, well, can a vegan eat roadkill? If an animal just died, hasn't been subjugated, it's dead, it's meat laying there. I would guess not. The answer is no. It's an animal product, just like mother's milk. Uh, You want to see a segue? Yes. Where are you guys on, on like roadkill right now? Wow, did we just change topics? I can't even really tell. <laughs> yeah, are you still on it? Like, do you go out of your way? Like, I mean, because we used to go, right? We'd go out of our way to get it. Right. Um, yeah, I still, once in a while, will pick something up, a pheasant or something like that, if I know it's fresh, yeah. Yeah. Not, not I don't know why, but not to the, maybe I... Eat a little higher in the hog now. It's like we live in the land of plenty. and Yeah, like a full freezer. Yeah, but uh, I'm definitely not opposed to picking up some roadkill. Yeah. Do you, got, like, do you ever feed your family roadkill stuff? We tried once with an elk that was uh, smashed up, I believe, by a, it was like a garbage truck that run through a whole herd. And uh, my bu- <laughs> my <laughs> good old I-70 there in Colorado. And my buddy Jimmy went through the, the whole process and just pulled over and waited and you know they lifted into his truck and I went and helped him uh, butcher but the whole thing was just purple and smashed and it we ended up just feeding it to Otis the dog yeah so we tried but no but like I think like yeah somehow you mentioning pheasant I would think that if I came across a turkey and I didn't have to punch my tag and I was able to quickly look at it and said oh there's two good breasts and two good thighs I mean yeah why not but I'm not picking up badgers and raccoons and <laughs> squirrel. I'd probably pass. 
I remember driving back from hunting one time, and this is in northern Montana where they have the intercontinental ballistic missile system. The Minuteman II project is, you know, strewn across the northern Great Plains. And they're always, like, the missile silos are always off the road quite a ways. I remember passing one of those missile silos, the entrance, and seeing a brand spickety new army jacket that had fallen out of a guy's truck and picked that up. I'm like, score! Because that was back in the days when stuff like that was like, mm. you know, you were loving, right, yeah. to have found a $20 jacket or whatever, an army surplus coat. But this wasn't even surplus. Yeah, it was like a dude's jacket. And just pulled out of there and got going again, feeling like luckiest guy in the world. I remember a pheasant, as they do, ran out and stopped in the road. And you think, like, how could you get a roadkill pheasant because it'd be destroyed? But I remember he was just the right height where, like, hitting him was kind of like... But he was graveyard dead. Graveyard dead, but just, like, nothing happened to it. And perfect. And and I might have talked about this before, but when we were little kids, you probably remember, we were coming back from tracking a deer. You know what I'm talking about? We had been out all night tracking a deer that the old man hit with his bow. And we're coming back at 2 in the morning, and bam! And I was sleeping in the front and hits a deer. So he gets out. You and Danny are in the back seat. I'm in the front seat. He gets out, and it was a, it was a 1979 Jeep Grand Cherokee. Green. Green <laughs> with, and I believe it was, uh, it had the, wasn't the Eddie Bauer design. But that, was, like, that was late. That was the, mini, the minivan later yeah, on. So yeah. I remember the inside of that thing, but he threw it in the back and starts going down the road, and all of a sudden, Matt and Danny are screaming bloody murder because the deer is up in the back of the car. <laughs> Standing in the back of the in the vehicle, and I remember the old man slammed on the brakes, drug the deer back out of the car, killed it with a knife, loaded it back up, and we were back on our. <laughs> back. I remember. I also remember one time hunting with you, and we found a roadkill pheasant, and we went to clean it, and it had nine lives cat food in its craw. I do remember that too. That's a bold pheasant, man, rooting around on the cat. Yeah. In the cat's I never even thought of that, what man. <laughs> and I remember you stuffed that pheasant with grapes and then stuffed it in a turkey. That was, yeah, I do remember finding cat, but yeah, it is a bold pheasant. He's like, you see that cat? To his buddies, watch. <laughs> <laughs> He's off looking for me. Watch what I do. <laughs> uh, okay, so... Like roadkill and the obvious questions that that brings up around perceptions of food and food safety. Here's an interesting thing that someone's talking about. They, they work on uh, mine remediation, so mine cleanup. And they work at a mining site where the reason they're there is because of soil contam- heavy metal soil contamination. And they go there and there's a bunch of morels grown in the mine site. And she was saying, like, you know, I pick the morels and eat them. And I think a lot of people would stumble across it and just be like, sweet, morels, and pick them all and eat them. But she's like, but I know about the contamination, but I eat them anyway. And she brings up this idea, like, do you ever get where you just kind of like, do you ever get where you feel like you just know too much about your food? Like, people want to know more. Like, they want to be closer to food and know more about it. But she's just wondering, like, do you ever get where you feel like just all the detail just becomes difficult? And, and the thing I think about, like, when you're eating halibut meat, 
Okay, when you're eating halibut, when I'm looking at my wife's plate, I see the six, seven inch long tapeworms. That it's in every, like everyone who's eating halibut is eating them. I see them, but I don't ever say, oh, Katie, you know what that is? And when you're eating bluegill flays and all, you ever look at a bluegill flay that's got those little black specks? When you pop that Flavor bluegill crystals. What's that? Flavor, Flavor crystals. <laughs> it's a little parasite. So you pop that thing in your mouth and you're eating hundreds of parasites, which is another thing I don't point out to people. Because you realize that this is being broadcast, right? Yeah, no, I know. I'm aware of that. All right. But do you know what I'm saying? Like, there's some people who want to know more and more and everything, and some people who are just want to know, like, I just don't need all the detail. Right? Right. Yeah. I don't, I, I would, I'd always want to know. But What's that? I'd always want to know, but like you, there's certain things that I know that I could ruin somebody's dinner if I told them. So I don't know about eating mushrooms off of mine site. Couldn't you get like arsenic poisoning or something like that? Yeah, so you feel like in that case, you'd no, want to know and then not do I mean, it. Yeah. But Maybe he, not. I don't know. What about eating all the, worms and ha- all the worms and halibut? Like you're cognizant of the fact that it's all these worms and halibut. It, it doesn't bother me at all. Yeah. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's, how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better. Because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know, they seem great to me. Just an improvement on perfection. The new system, made in the USA, gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20 plus years. Deck is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck, out of the way, and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. 
Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl dogs and here's one of those buddies max not the dog but the buddy i've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states u.s and canada different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees and it just doesn't stop working i'm a fan for life get 20 percent off your first purchase using code meat eater so go to www.sportdog.com slash meat eater to learn more um, this is pertinent because of, a, of another like point of discussion that I think is valuable to have. Is a guy observe? He's like, I'd want to know if I was eating placenta. You'd want to know placenta. That, I draw a line. So you're like, what are these uh, pills we're eating, Yannis? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting because because there's a, there's a, a a guy I communicate with, and he has a little bit of an axe to grind on the thing that he thinks that hunters are becoming guilty of is like hunters are aware of sort of the, the, the national conversation that we're, we're having around food, right. And, and food awareness and understanding the ramifications of your choices on the global scale about how you eat and what the effects of how you eat are. Right. And, and what's the economy that you're participating in. And that when, you know, like we kind of are tuned into that. And he feels that like a lot of guys are now, who a few years ago even weren't espousing all the virtues of wild game, but they're now, because they know that it sells well to the public, that he's finding it a little bit annoying to that people are like, oh, and it's organic, and that's really all I care about, and it's free range and humanely harvested. And he feels like it's gotten a little empty where it's just like this sort of masturbatory activity of doing all this. And he's wondering, like, is it really honestly? Like, is it actually healthier? And the first question I want to ask around that is, can you even say that it's organic? It's not Um, certified organic. Non-certified organic. Right, it's not certified. Not, not, right. It is not certified could it, organic. But could it be certified And in some organic. cases, Doug Dur- okay, you're at Doug Durant's farm hunting white-tailed then, deer. Then it couldn't, right? If you're hunting white-tailed deer in the Midwest, is it organic meat? Depends on it could, it could not be certified as organic, right? I mean, but even, let, let's get, okay, there is a certification process. But like, let, forget the certification process. Let's no, I'm saying it's not. It wouldn't be eligible for certification. It would because, not be eligible well, for I mean, certification. It, it, most cor- it's hard to grow an acre of corn in the Midwest without an herbicide. Yeah, but not all the Midwest is the same. Are we talking like the northern tier? Of I the thought we were talking about like, Doug's like, farm. We're talking agriculture. In our agricultural landscape, you're going to have a lot of food available to those deer that is non-organic feed. 
And if you fed it to a beef, a beef cow, that beef cow would not be eligible. From eligibility. Yep. So even a wild turkey at Doug's. Non-organic. certainly not organic. But free range. But, yes. Back, back you always up, have that. Backing up a little bit. Do you, do you think, I'm just curious what you think. Do you think it's disingenuous or do you think that there's been some kind of, there's like a change in the air and people are starting to take the food component of hunting more seriously? I think that both things are happening. Depends. I think there's a lot of genuine and I think there's a lot of cynical. I think there's a lot of um, just like people looking for the crutch. And like the guy that, that I communicate with was raising this question He's like, I just feel better eating it. Like, I like to go out and hunt my friends, and I feel good securing my own meat, and that's what I choose. Even if you told me it was somehow like a little bit more dangerous than the other stuff and not quite as safe as the other stuff, like, that's just how I feel best. Like, that's what I like to eat, and I'm satisfied just feeling that. I don't feel like I need to take some other language and some other ideas and sort of like, conform it so that my choices reflect some contemporary understanding of what's right and what's wrong. Right. Because I have even at times they talked about even the question of humanely raised. I don't know. Like then you're sort of saying like, is, gro- is growing up is an animal that lives out in the natural landscape. Is that a humane environment getting gnawed on by coyotes? like living under the constant stress of predation, watching your offspring routinely slaughtered, that if you're a turkey and you lay batches of eggs 12 at a time, and you're lucky if you can do that three years and have one of those grow up to an adult, so you've lost 35 young in the course of your, is that, is that, so I'm like humanely raised. Yeah, I don't know. know. If I I had to guess, I'd guess it'd, it'd be more, I'd rather have that fate because you see animals play and jog around and chase each other, like especially in farm fields. Well, a lot of far, in a lot of conventional farm situations, farm, those those animals display like behaviors that are neurotic. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I'm devil's advocate in a little bit because I do still, even considering all that, I still view it. Because you can't help but view it like, if I, was in the, if I was in one of those situations, which would I pick? I'd be like, I'll pick the, that. Right. right. The, the outfending for myself. But then there's the other question of like, uh, is it humanely harvested? Which is another one. I've thrown that out there. But then you look and I'm like, sometimes, sometimes amazingly so. Right. Sometimes. Well, yeah, I, I, would, I would probably argue that on, on balance that, Farm animals are more humanely harvested. They're more humanely slaughtered. Uh, yeah. Because you have a system. They got a, they got a pretty systemized, you know, like that that uh, that air gun that dude uses in yeah, uh, No Country for Called a captive man. bolt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the way they have things now where, like, animals used to, animals going through the slaughter process, it used to be that they were aware of what's ahead of them, but now they're in a lot of blind turn passages so you're not aware of who what's going on mm. come around the corner and thwack. yeah you're not like watching like you know bob out ahead of you right <laughs> and uh they've you know never did like that old bob yeah they <laughs> like they've eliminated that and sometimes sure you could be out and the thing like 
here's an animal that you're going to harvest or kill, and it's oblivious to your presence, and there's not even a second that it has to register what's going on. But earlier we talked about situations that aren't that way. Oh, man. In hunting, I mean, we all know it's, like, not that clean. I mean, sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. Yeah, so I just wind up feeling, like, a little bit like, um, I just feel that, like, honesty is good. And I think that to go in and just sort of borrow, like, put your finger to the, to the breeze. Right. Preempt, preempt and, the language of, of, like, yeah, people that are trying to do agriculture better and, like, you know. And one day he'd be like, well, I used to hunt deer because I thought if there weren't, there'd be too many, whatever that means. Um, now I'm switching. I'm switching to organic, right? Because right. you just are dying to, and I feel like it's like a thing. Like people feel like I really want to like tell people about this thing and I want them to get it. So what do they, what do they want to hear again? I think some of that goes on. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, you look like you're not satisfied, Carl. No, you're making a good point. I'm, I'm running through all the words that get thrown around, and I guess there's just so much potential for diversity in the answer based on what exactly played out. You know, in some instances, as Matt pointed out, humanely slaughtered would, would apply. In some cases, some pseudo-organic label would apply. In some circumstances, local is another word you know, people like to throw around. And certainly that applies sometimes. But then you've got, you know, like my first elk I shot in Idaho on a trip from Wisconsin. So think about the fossil fuel implications of a transcontinental road trip to kill an elk and drive it back home. So I agree wholeheartedly with this, you know, this caution around trying to borrow the language. Yeah. Um, and also the point about the value of honesty. Um, but I think there is very much a growing realization among a large segment of our non-hunting public that there's this opportunity to have more of a connection to where your food's coming from. And maybe that's, maybe that's the... It, it's, it's, but but it's, that, is, that is a powerful connection. Yes, a, and maybe that's the word. Regardless of like, what snazzy terms you're able to borrow from Whole Foods, that's a powerful yes. connection. This is, this is food that I have a connection to. And that probably is like unequivocal. You have some connection to that food. Yeah. That's why I, I was going to bring up, like in looking at it, um, it's a great point. You fly from Montana out to Doug's place, say, and it's not local. It's at Doug's place, so it's not organic. You had to shoot twice, so it wasn't humane. <laughs> but, you know, I'd be like, but you know what, man? I like being around wild animals. And I went out there and figured out how to do it, and I got it done, and now I got to eat it. And not only that, but my, the, 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 the system that we've built in this society that allows these things to occur is actually beneficial to the resource. Um, so I'm feeling pretty good about this steak. Yep. So another word that I think generally would apply when we're talking about consuming wildlife in North America through legal channels would be sustainable. So connected, sustain, sustainable source of food. I think those would apply across the board because there's no regulated hunting that we're doing here on this continent that wouldn't fit the latter of those two categories. 
So I want to ask, if, to the best of your ability, and you already did, but like, to the best of your ability, like, why is it, like, why is it the diet you prefer? Is it because it enables you to engage in the activities? Like, like what is it? Because it lets you do the activities you like, and you're not going to waste it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's just like we've done it since we were kids, and even when we were little kids, it was just, just this giddy feeling of getting something by your own wits and having it be your food. I remember when we were little kids, like we had this idea that we were going to have a dinner where everything either came from the garden or, or it was something that we caught. You know, yeah. I don't, I don't know how that came to be that that, that we prioritized that, but that that that's certainly a component of it. Is this just like feeling that you did it, you got your food yourself, and it, yeah, and it felt as good and as fun then before anybody started dabbling in the justifications, right? And and it's not just about hunting because going out and get some morels that's uh, that triggers the same impulse to me. Picking wild asparagus. Wild asparagus, but yeah. Garden plant. Right, right. It's like the wild, it's like a wild hog. It's the wild hog of vegetables. Like if someone said to me, like, you can get some asparagus out of my garden or you can pick some of the shit that came up in the drainage ditch, I'd be like, in your drainage ditch? That's amazing. It tastes so good. It's so much better than the stuff in your garden. Your pee, do- your pee doesn't even stink with it. Yeah, what is it, Yanni? Do you know? You ever thought about it? I thought about it, but I, no, I don't, I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, we've been doing it for so long. I mean, because I got into it really because I became a hunting guide. And then I sort of got into eating wild game. We, didn't, like, we ate some of it growing up, like, but there was only a few deer around. So between the family, I think it disappeared pretty quickly. But it wasn't as celebrated in my house growing up as it was for you guys, I don't think. It wasn't like a big deal. We didn't sit around eating burgers, talking about where that deer came from or how it got shot or whatever. It just didn't happen. And it might have been other circumstances why we didn't have those conversations. But um, yeah, so I always found myself just like all of a sudden I was an elk hunting guide. And then I had elk, and next thing you know, we're like eating a bunch of elk, and it just naturally happened. And so that's where I am now. Um, I don't know if I really chose to end up there. Just you know, life took me there, and I might it might take me away from there. I would there might ma- come a time when I'm not, I'm not always eating wild game or really? solely wild game. That's hard to imagine. Really, it, it, it is, but I'm just saying. It, like you'd be just get all stoved off. You're too job. old to get yeah, out there anymore. <laughs> Like you're just too decrepit to go. I was talking with Dar about it today, about how we both of us used to just like, all we thought about was catching trout on flies for a good decade of my life. That was like on my mind every day. Now I go months, maybe even a year without thinking about doing that. Maybe that'll happen with uh, killing and eating wild game. I don't know. I bet it's Dar, you don't like catching trout anymore? <laughs> Not as much. Something faded, huh? I mean, imagine a person that eats game meat on a daily basis like we all do. It's not like if you're there by yourself, like I live alone or like with your family, it's probably not like a nightly thing where you go, gee golly, isn't it great to be eating wild game? Where it really comes into play is when you have people over that don't eat it a lot. That's when it's exciting. Yeah. But I feel guilty to not eat it. Oh, I never don't eat it. No, even to have like, like if if I come home, 
Like my wife doesn't like to cook, and she'll oftentimes make the kids, like for her, it's like the easiest thing is to make breakfast, so she'll sell it like a big, exciting thing. We're like, they're like, oh my gosh, it's amazing, breakfast for dinner, right? And she'll just like fry eggs and make toast, and I'll right. come home and get a little bit of a guilty feeling. Right, right, yeah. That's like, that's not how it is. That's not what I want their experiences to be, because like they, I like, it's important for me, it's important to me, well, a couple things are important to me, it's important to me that they see me making them dinner because there's like a little bit of a, like a kind of like, kind of like, like something I recognize as sort of a sac, like, like a sacrament or whatever. Like no matter how busy, whatever, it's like important to like that this person takes the time to like serve me something. So it's important they see that. And it's equally important because it's like, here's where this stuff came from. This is the situation. Like we did this and now this is what we eat. Because it winds up, it just feels like this, that you're, you're taking something that's mundane, but making it like rich and instructional. So in missing out on that, I get like a guilty conscience. The same yeah. way when we were kids, I would get a guilty feeling if I didn't go hunting with dad. That I would wake up and hope to see that it was too windy and rainy. Oh, oh, wow. And then I'd feel bad about hoping that it was too windy and rainy to go sit in a tree in the woods. Oh. And I feel like, like I've said before, I think it's like how some people feel about church. Like you'd feel guilty if you didn't go. I just remember feeling like guilty to let the old man down. So like so much of my life is influenced by like, by feelings of guilt that are difficult to explain to other people. I, maybe I just don't have the normal problems that people get guilty about anymore. Like I've just got done doing that kind of stuff. And now I feel guilty about random weird shit. <laughs> like my kids eating eggs. At supper time. Any more to add for me there? <laughs> Go ahead, Carl. So one of, the, one of the key determinants in longevity and happiness is an individual sense of gratitude. Right? Like is that people, right? Yes. A lot of research indicates people who express a high degree of appreciation recognize the things they have to be grateful for tend to live a more fulfilling and longer life. Can I interrupt you for a minute? Yeah. Do you have your phone on, Giannis? I don't. Uh, every email that Doug Duran sends. Yes. At the end of Doug Duran's sign-off. Um, you know, a lot of guys like, have some like, badass thing they use on their sign-off. Like, 45 ACP, because it's stupid to shoot twice, right? <laughs> Doug Duran's is... Uh, <laughs> Doug Dern's is the days when I keep my gratitude higher than my expectations. Right. Yeah, yeah. Those are good days. Yeah. Anyways, I'm sorry. No, it's. I feel like we were dogging on how Doug's farm's not organic. No, it, it, <laughs> no, it's, it's funny you mentioned Doug Dern because he and I were texting today a little bit, and I was texting to express my gratitude, Doug Dern. Like, I want you to just look at this text. This is from today. I want to reiterate my gratitude. Oh, yeah, Doug Duran's response, I'm grateful for yeah. all of it too. So what I'm trying to get at here is, and this is, a, this is a, a piece of wisdom I picked up from my grandma, Alexander, who taught me every day try to find something to be grateful for. He calls it counting your blessings, right? And you could think about that in a religious way. You could think about that in a secular way. But taking stock of the things that we have to be grateful for. And that's the reason that Thanksgiving is like by far my favorite holiday of the year. Getting everybody together, 
cooking a big meal, having time where you actually just think about how good you've got it. Because yeah. every single person in this room and every single person listening to this has a hell of a lot to be thankful for, right? Yeah, you're all going to live long lives. Um, but there's a lot of people who have a lot to be thankful for that don't recognize it, right? So one of the things that happens when you have this food that you're connected to, I feel like it makes Thanksgiving more than a once a year kind of thing. You have the opportunity to sit down and take stock of all the things you have to be grateful for. And you could think about that in terms of the wildlife resources of the country. Um, I think I do a lot more cooking and service to my family as a result of having this meat that I want to work my way through. Because a piece of it is definitely like, man, my freezer is full. I do want to go hunting next fall. We got to get through all this meat. Yep. It's not like a chore, but it's this like, it it's, like the, it's like the sand in the hourglass, right? Like I got to get that sand going through the hourglass such that when August or September rolls around, I've got some space in the freezer because I want to go hunting again. So there's a piece of that, but really it's this idea of the celebration and the gratitude and just a little story. And, and um, I'll counter just a little bit what you were saying about um, other people coming into your home, Matt, where you were saying like being able to share with other people is a, is a, a big thing. I, I agree that that's a big thing, but something happened at our dinner table recently where it was just my wife, our daughter, and me. And we have taken my grandma Alexander's um, tradition of the gratitude exercise and also stolen your best, worst, weirdest exercise for our dinner table. We yeah. talk about what's your best, what's your worst, what's your weirdest, what's something you're grateful for. And it's a way to like have a dinner conversation because my wife and I are trying to make the family dinner like a sacred thing. We're trying to carve time out and make it like we're sitting here, we're having a meal together going to be our nightly tradition, right? And we got this daughter who's going to be four in August. So she's, you know, still developing, right? Like she's, she hasn't figured out the whole world yet. But there was, a, there was a dinner we were having, would have been late last year, early this year, um, where we were eating some of the moose from Idaho. Mm -hmm. And I'd done a European mount of that moose skull. So I've got it hanging in our living room, but you can see it from our dining room table. And so we're sitting there going around the uh, dinner table doing what we're grateful for. And my little girl is three years old. She says, I'm thankful for the moose for his meat. That's nice. And it like sent a chill down my spine, dude, yeah. to have this little person who's still trying to figure things out acknowledge that there's this way in the 21st century for us as a family to be gathered around this sacred Thanksgiving meal that was happening in December or January and having her at that age understanding that there's this thing to be grateful for, which is this remaining wildness that we have in this country. Yeah. And given what I do professionally, having my, my career dedicated to the conservation cause and then having this little person be like, man, I'm grateful that that moose did something so that we can have this dinner. And I feel like my family is a better place. Our country is a better place. And 
portions of the world, at least, are a better place because people are experiencing that kind of deep personal connection and gratitude, and we're going to live longer as a result. Yeah. Um, the, the family meal thing uh, is, is something that I push really heavy, and not long ago I took my eight-year-old in for his checkup, like his eight-year checkup, and they give you a questionnaire. And one of the questions, like right off the top, was like, do you have guns in the home? And I'm like, oh, man, where's this going, you know? <laughs> but then if it's yes, it allows you to go to the next box, which is, do you keep them secured? The next question is, do you have family dinner time? I remember thinking, I like this son of a bitch that wrote this thing, man. It's like, <laughs> keep your guns secured, have family dinner. Uh, got one last one. And, and you guys can hit any concluders or not. And this is just a, a, a guy that wrote in, and he's, he, I, I can just feel his pain, his short, clean sentences. He says... I missed a beauty of a Tom this morning on my first ever turkey hunt. <laughs> missed. 12-gauge, full choke, long beard. Will I ever get over it? <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> and I'm telling you what, man. I remember the first, so the first year... We were, the first year, we just completed our one, we just finished our 100th episode of Meat Eater, the TV show. Nice. Made a hundred of them. And <laughs> however long, like, however long that takes, right? The first ever season we did, and one of the first hunts of the first ever season we made I missed a very big blacktail, sick of blacktail, the likes of which I have not seen since. I'm starting to, to come to terms with it. <laughs> like, I'm starting to not be, you know, I was reminded of, uh, I got to take this in a weird direction for a second. I remember Matt, who's sitting here, one time reviewing in his mind some interactions he had had with women in high school and <laughs> being like, he's like, now that I look at what I think was going on there and I didn't detect what was happening and he was down on the floor of the bar beating the ground and going, stupid, stupid, stupid. <laughs> and I still, you know, I still, like, I'm getting over that now. So I think that the pain of, like, the miss just, you get circumspect about it. Yeah, I've gotten over the missed opportunities with young girls from my teens or whatever, but so I need to get counseling. Don't, don't I need to get, get counseling on a few misses. On some misses. Yeah. <laughs> you pointed out one thing about missing is what you don't like about it is it because you miss because you panic. Right? Right. Because you're like, if you miss a, a deer at 20 yards, you hit paper all day at 20 yards. So you know it's like, I panic. And I remember you saying something really kind of interesting. You said, what I hate is just anger at myself that I can't control my greed. Yeah. That I wanted it so oh, but yeah. bad it's that like the greed ugly, overtook. Yeah, yeah. 
The ugly. It's an interesting way of, to put it. It's like, yeah. I can't, like, how am I so greedy? Yeah, I can't control your passions. Yeah. They, like, they my pa- like wh- here I am, I can't, like, beat my passions. Yeah. Like, I want it so bad that it actually prevents me from getting it. Yeah. What kind of fool? Yeah. Now I really need counseling. <laughs> <laughs> He'll get over it because turkey season's going to, you know, it's going to be here again six, seven months. Um, yeah, you get lots of opportunities. Yeah, because like the turkeys, um, they're so hard to tell apart that you don't have that burned image. Right. Like you do with something that's distinguished, like the antlers, right? They burn in your mind, man. You know? Yeah, the giant mule deer with a bunch of extras and like 15 points on one side and 30 points on the other side. <laughs> Yeah, you might never get over missing that one. That's hard. Any sage wisdom? I think, so a couple thoughts. First off, don't hang your head because it happens to everybody. And once you've racked up a set of experiences that includes a clean miss versus an animal that gets away that you know you hit, yeah. those are the ones that stick with me a lot more. There are times, you know, I've missed something cleanly, and you, once you've been through enough of those experiences, you're like, well, at least I missed him cleanly. Yeah. You know, the one that got away, but got away untouched. Um, and if he thinks this experience with that turkey hurt, wait till he experiences something where he doesn't recover an animal he knows he hit. And then you got to live with that. Yeah, and I think there's, no, there's nothing I've experienced that's more soul-rendering. Like, I've, you know, to the point that, like, what am I even doing out here sometimes? It, it, it's the lowest you can feel, I think. Yeah, I, I've, I've felt like there's, like I've, you feel like I've walked out of the woods feeling like I am done with this. Yeah, From so that's, that, yeah. so the bird got away. Hopefully the bird's fine. He's shooting a full choke. Chances are at close range of the full choke, either the turkey's dead or the turkey's untouched. Doesn't mention that he sees feathers flying or anything like that, so take solace in the fact that that tom is out there to hunt another day. There's one, one piece of it. I wonder if it walked past him off the roost without him calling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to give him a piece of practical advice. I guarantee he sailed it over the top of its head. Yeah. Because he's aiming at its head, not its waddles. Yeah. I hate to um, rub salt in his wound, but I was thinking about this the other day. I've never missed a turkey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, you were with me. I've never missed one. I had one fly off. Like he rolled him and he got up and flew? Him and he got up and pitched off a mountainside and was gone as gone. I mean, there wasn't even a, you couldn't even have envisioned like going over to have a look. He was just... That felt bad. Uh, any final little things? Anything you wanted to wedge in there thinking about this and never got a chance to wedge no, in there? No, no, it's great to be here. This is a really good guy. I like the conversations you guys are having. It's good to be involved. It's good to see everybody coming out for these things. And there's nothing you're like, man, I wish he would have. No, no, I, 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 I'm sated. I feel like I've spoken my piece. No <laughs> hanging chads or anything. <laughs> nice <laughs> the hanging chad reference i like it yeah you good yeah lay I, something you know what there's nothing you want to lay out there 
just like a totally like, do vegans drink milk, breast milk, right? Like <laughs> no, no. I, I was going to use my 10 seconds because I know we're short on time just to remind everybody that we're going to set up some space here to do some book signing and we're going to have a couple lines and the awesome uh, help here at the improv is going to help you guys make a nice line for to do some book signing and pictures. Yeah, let's hear it but, for everyone uh, that works at the improv, man. Yeah, this guy's been great. I wonder what it would be like, I'm thinking now, like, if you uh, crisp some placenta in the oven and then drizzle it with chocolate and dipped it in breast milk, like cookies. Oh. Can, I, can I just take a moment to tell you guys about the Jewel sous vide? <laughs> Have you tried one? Done some sous vide. Have you done some sous vide? Yes, sir. Uh, you look like you're ready for a big concluder. <laughs> I'm not going to read this to you, but I do want to point a couple things out. As a concluder. Yeah, that's fine. So I've got the 2016 National Survey on Fishing, Hunting, and Wildlife Associated Recreation, which was the results of which were released late in 2017. This is the report that touches on the decline in hunting participation that I've been hearing a lot about in the news. Of which I have many questions about. Of which you have many questions about. Would you like me to answer one of your questions that I know has been on your mind? No. About this report? No. Okay, just stick with the concluder. I just want to let it be known that there's a, the, the, if you look at me, rather than a halo, there's a, there's a question mark. A question. Okay. okay, fair enough. If you look at the percentage of Americans who are participating in hunting in particular, based on the change between the 2011 and the 2016 data, um, and this is a survey conducted every five years, we have experienced a fairly substantial decline in hunting participation. Um, on the order of, in 2011, about 13.7 million hunters. To 2016, 11.5 million hunters. And these are people 16 years and older. A modest uptick in recreational fishing. There are about 36 million anglers as of the 2016 survey. And then wildlife viewing, 86 million. And so... What I, want to, what I want to touch on is my concluder. I've got, a, I've got kind of a question. And on the way here, I was listening to the podcast that came out from Colorado. And during the concluders there, you had a few of the guests. I know Cal touched on this idea of trailhead diplomacy. Yeah. He talked about like needing to interact in a positive way with the other. be a dick to people at the trailhead. Yeah. 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 Putting, putting the hunting communities best foot forward. And, you know, there's been a lot of effort that has gone into recruiting new hunters over the last 10 years. Um, they talk about the three R's of recruiting, retaining, and reactivating new hunters. But if you look at the demographics, we have this big bulge of hunters who are towards the end of their hunting career. And it's unlikely that there's going to be a similar kind of infusion of new hunters through recruitment to make up for this impending decline. Of baby boomers dying as off. As baby boomers age out of the hunting population. And, and, and reproductive rates go down in the country. Yeah. So, as a concluder, what I want to do is I want to I ask a question of the audience, all right? Because I feel like as the hunting numbers decline, 
we have a couple of opportunities. We have a couple, a, a choice, basically. One option is we think about our community in terms of hunters looking out for hunters, like doing everything we can to protect our interests. Yep. And think about our community as a community of hunters, hunters looking out for hunters. That's option A. Watching our own. Watching our own. Option B is kind of like the trailhead diplomacy idea on steroids, where the hunting community takes a leadership role, building on the fact that some 75 to 80% of America, the non-hunting public, approves of hunting. And we champion a cause for conservation that welcomes in, like actively seeks out partnership, relationship with other segments of the conservation community to try to create a social monolith for conservation, of which hunters are a central part, but a member of a community. And the argument against doing that, the reason you would not want to do that is because that community comes with sharing more decision space, right? You could think about it in terms of funding, for example. We currently bear the bulk of the burden to fund state fish and wildlife agencies through license fees and the excise taxes. If, which buys us a tremendous amount of influence. Which buys us a disproportionate amount yeah. of influence. So if we want to share that decision space, you're going to be sharing that decision space with a whole lot of people who might not have the same values, the same interests. But I would point, again, to the high approval rating among the non-hunting public for regulated legal hunting. And I would point to the implications of us failing to act in a meaningful way. Because if we're going to be a small element of the population in a democratic society and potentially losing quality and quantity of outdoor recreational opportunity as a result of most people just simply not caring about conservation. In the long term, we have a lot to lose. So the question for the audience, and I, I want to hear, like, honestly, I want to hear a yep if you feel like hunters need to look out for hunters first and foremost. Or the option, a yep, for I want to hear hunters as the foundation of a conservation revolution that involves a whole host of values. Everybody ready for that? Can you yep with pause? Can you yep with pause? Like a, like a, like a, like a reticent, like, yep. Nope. <laughs> you, get, you get A, you get A, or you get B. And there's nothing wrong, like nobody... The only ground rule here is you cannot ridicule your neighbor one way or the other for what they do. Is everybody cool with that? Okay. Look out, look out for your own or extend a hand. That, I like that. Look out for your own. Hunters looking out for hunters or extend your hand. Hunters as the catalysts for conservation revolution. Okay. Good. Looking out for your own. Hunters as the catalyst for a conservation revolution. 
All right. It's a good experiment, and thank you for uh, bringing such a big, well-thought concluder. That was, that was, a, that was a, uh, an award-winning concluder, Carl. <laughs> Again, Carl Malcolm, Matt Ranello, Giannis Mutelis. Thank you. A uh, couple things. I want to let one minute, because you had a thing you wanted to add. No, a couple quick things. Out front, we have uh, long ago, I, uh, a buddy of mine, la- that, not long ago, this spring, a buddy of mine was talking about uh, a turkey he killed, how the turkey was ripping some gobbles, and it was real cold morning, and every time he'd rip a gobble, a steam cloud would come out of his mouth. And I observed that if I was a painter, that's the first thing I would paint. So a, 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 a podcast listener made us the steam-breathing uh, power gobbler. And check out the posters out front. We got our genuine blouch shirts out front. And there was some other note. Sorry. That's blouch. There, wasn't there a thing that we decided that you were going to say? No. I forgot. There was that. some throwing of some hats, I recall. Oh, that there wasn't a thing like I said. That's your job. Afterward. Yeah, I already did it as part of my concluder to help oh, help everybody. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, and no we'll be uh, yeah we'll, we'll come up front to 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 uh, sign stuff and do some pictures and hang out until they say it's time to go home. So thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it again. Thank you. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.